0: Welcome to our sermon. I am Pastor Nathan Escarraga, and I am sure that God will
1: speak to you through his word today.
0: Because it's a holiday that we as Christians hold so near and dear to our, our hearts. So surely we should call it Great Friday or, or the Best Friday. Um, cheesy joke, I, I know, cheesy joke. But, but truly, if, if I were to start calling it Best Friday, I don't think that anybody here would disagree with me. Uh, and the reason for that stands behind me. There's a a wooden cross that signifies the cross upon which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified on over 2,000 years ago, halfway across the globe. And yet we still celebrate today. And we know that we still celebrate because we know that the reason for today is that Jesus died uh, for our sins uh, upon that cross. And we may not all know exactly what was weighing upon that cross in that moment that jesus called out in his dying breath to the father to, to ask the father to forgive the very men who were nailing him to that cross so today i'm going to lead us down the path uh, that jesus walked throughout his life uh, through his ministry which leads to jerusalem uh, where jesus would go and it culminates in this path that jesus walked all throughout jerusalem on the day of his crucifixion through the very streets where Jesus was hailed as King and Savior only days earlier. And so today we're going to be reading through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are four books that that we all know. We call them the Gospels. And we read in in Scripture about these Gospels, and, and we often simplify them as salvation literature, which are condensed into the message that is signified behind me. But we have to realize that the Gospel is not simply... The story of salvation, although it is that, although it is that, but it's actually the climax of God's story. You see, when I looked into the word gospel, and, and for anybody who's listened to me preach before, you know I love a good word study because I'm, I'm a previous Bible college student and before that I was an English major. And I just think there's so much depth of meaning that we can get when we talk about language and when we talk about the way that we convey truth and, and convey things through language and I think that that's really powerful to me so uh, suffer with me sorry (laughs) Uh, but but when I looked into the word gospel what I found is that it's actually not Greek it's not Hebrew and it's not even Latin so every time that I've ever done a word study on something biblical I've always found that it's either one of those three but the gospel the word gospel actually is none of those three and this is the first time that's ever happened it's actually old English uh, and it's broken into two parts, which are gos and spell, or or more accurately, back in Old English, it was God and spell, so it was God's spell. Uh, and so when we break it into two parts, I'm sure you all know what the first half is. It's easy. It's God. But then the second half is spell, which means in Old English, story. So when we translate it literally, it means God's story. But the Gospels are... are, are just the beginning of the new testament so they're not the full story of god are they if the gospels are the beginning of the new testament we know that god's story really begins with the old testament and, and even before that in fact all of time is god's story so then why are these four books of the bible referred to as the gospels or referred to as god's story uh, and it has less to do with the entire story of god which is all of time and it, and it can be found throughout all of scripture including the old testament But they're called the Gospels because they have more to do with the man upon which these four books are centered on. And these books are the story of a man who was himself God. And so when we look at this path to Jerusalem, what we're looking at is uh, at at God's story or the man who was God's story as told by Luke. It begins in chapters 1 and 2 with the birth of Jesus. But we hear all about the birth of Jesus on Christmas, so I'm just going to leave those two chapters alone, because today is Easter, so we're going to start with chapter three, which is my favorite part, because this is is where we hear and we read about the long lineage of the line of Jesus. And when I wrote that, I'm like, oh, that's only interesting to me. Everybody else is going to be groaning because it's like li- lineages and and word studies, like how boring. Uh, but but a lot of people will tell you to just dis- dismiss lineages because. They, they have more to do with with the historical relevance. And, and what we know because of these things is, is that the Bible is the most historically accurate book uh, from that time, from that uh, era, which gives us a, a really firm place to stand upon. But if you begin to dismiss the lineages because they're only about historical relevance, I promise you, you're doing yourself a major disservice. You see, the line of Jesus tells us Uh, of, of many men, but there are two men in that lineage who you might recognize. The first being Moses, and the second being King David. Now why is this significant, you ask? It's because prophecy foretold the Jews that there would come a Messiah who would deliver them. And one of the ways that they'd be able to distinguish who this Messiah was, was that he was to come out from these covenants, which just means that he would come from these promises that God made to two men, and that out of their lines would come a savior and these two men are named moses and david king david and, and god's promises uh, said that out of them would come a savior and a king who would establish the kingdom of god forever and that's respective to both of them now in the mosaic covenant it's it's far more vague if you actually read the mosaic covenant you might miss it uh, because god is is telling moses that he would bless the earth without of moses god would bring the word Right, and so when we read that, we realize that what he's talking about is the word, both written and living. We read in, in the First John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in this way, he's bringing to fruition this promise that he made to Moses that out of his line and out of him would come a word which would bless all of the earth. But then with King David, it's, it's far more overt. So, so you don't have to like really try to seek and discover It's It's just right there. In First Chronicles seven ten to 12, it says, Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. And when your days are fulfilled and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me. And I will establish his throne forever. And this is the best part because he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And this comes to fruition in in David's very own son, who we read about. His name is King Solomon. And he builds a temple to God uh, and and he begins to establish uh, God's kingdom in, in Israel and in Jerusalem. But then we also see in Jesus that after Uh, many generations from the line of David comes Jesus who brings out of David's descendants a Messiah who would establish God's kingdom forever, which is what it says. He will establish his kingdom forever, who was in every way the Son of God. So already we're getting so much from this lineage. We're getting such a depth of meaning, but it doesn't stop giving don't dismiss these lineages because they don't stop giving the second part is that it's not only t- trying to demonstrate that Jesus came to fulfill prophecy but also that he would come to reflect these two men in his journey to finish that vicious cycle of sin so we're going to jump all the way from Luke 9 now to Luke or sorry from Luke 3 to Luke 9 and as i promised from the outset we're going to look at the journey that Jesus took and the path that Jesus would take to that cross and, and so through Luke chapters three to nine, Jesus has done a lot of teaching, right? And, and his ministry begins there, but he doesn't start his path towards Jerusalem. So while that stuff is all super valuable, today is Easter. So we wanna focus on that path to Jerusalem that he took. And I think the most significant verses for Good Friday begin in chapters nine to 23. But in this section, chapters nine to 23, Jesus begins this long trip from the mountain. Right? and when I, when I say this mountain, you would know what mountain it is because it's the same mountain where he made the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5 and 6. Um, all the way to Jerusalem, he's making this path all the way down from, from the Mount where he made the Sermon uh, all the way to Jerusalem where he will join thousands of Israelites to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Right, And for those who don't know what Passover is, it is a festival that the Jewish people celebrate where they were delivered from captivity in Egypt and, and they were delivered out. And why is this so significant to the Israelites? Because of who led them out of, out of Egypt? Moses. Right? So already we're, getting, we're coming back to that lineage. And Luke wants to remind us, the reader, that the trip that Jesus makes is reminiscent. It's, it's familiar because it's similar to that same journey that moses made with the israelites when he went from mount sinai to the promised land but then later king david also comes to, uh, after many generations and he begins to establish the promised land in jerusalem as their capital and so in this way luke is trying to portray portray jesus as the new moses who has come to renew god's covenant with israel because god made a covenant with moses and so god jesus is coming to, to renew this covenant, except he doesn't come to renew it. In fact, it says in scripture that he didn't come to abolish the law or to renew the law, but to fulfill it. It says that in Matthew five seventeen. And in doing so, he's reflecting Moses, but in this completely new and revolutionary way where he actually comes to establish the promised land in Jerusalem. Uh, or, or sorry, he, he's coming to, to make this new covenant. And in doing so, he's going to overcome the law. that that God actually gave to Moses, right? So he's coming as a new Moses, but instead of coming with a new law or establishing a new law for the Israelites, he's coming to fulfill it. But in the same way, Luke is also trying to portray Jesus as this new David, right? So in the lineage, we're not just talking Moses, we're talking King David. And so it it tries to tell us that uh, Jesus is coming to gather the people, to establish a new kingdom of God where the Israelites will enjoy God's reign forever. That's the promise that he makes to to, to King David. But again, this won't be anywhere near how the people of Israel thought. They thought that he'd make a new covenant just like Moses did. And they, they think that he's gonna establish this kingdom like King David did, except it's not gonna be anywhere near how the people of Israel thought it would. You see, as Jesus made his way, he didn't make a beeline straight for Jerusalem. He, he stops along the way and he does this, this great road trip, the, the greatest road trip of all time. And in every city he arrived at, he would share the good news. And he would call people to join something that you may remember me speaking about before, which is that Jesus was calling people to join as disciples of Christ and form this new humanity, right? A new kingdom, the kingdom of God, which was both now and not yet. And that this new humanity and this new kingdom was, was to be built upon counter-cultural principles, both of truth and grace. And for us, we know grace, we understand grace, we, we love grace, but that was not a thing back in ancient Israel. They had the law, they had only truth. So Jesus comes with this message of truth and grace. It's spat in the face of the Pharisees who, who preached that the only way to God was in obedience and in adherence to the law. That was the only way you could have relationship with God was to be obedient and to just follow stringently all of these laws. And so Jesus was going to Jerusalem not to establish a new kingdom like like the Israelites thought, like, like King David did, but he's actually bringing this new kingdom with him. He knows that this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, was not yet complete. It couldn't be complete without the work of grace. We've got the truth but the work of grace needs to, to, to still needs to take place. And so Jesus, as he begins to draw near to Jerusalem, he's finished his long road trip. He's bringing disciples with him. And this is where we begin reading uh, of the gospels as, as the final chapters of, of all of Luke all pertain to the last week of Jesus's life. I think that's crazy. I think that's significant, right? Jesus lived so many years and yet, uh, the only portion that we read about is, is you know his birth and, and then uh, his, his work of ministry all takes place pretty rapidly. and like these are years and years and yet you you only hear a, a portion of it. But then all of these last chapters all pertain to the last week of his life. And that's the same week that we find ourselves in this week, which is the week of Passover or the week of Easter. And beginning in Luke 19:28 to 38, uh, I'm only going to grab uh, 36 to 38, but all of from from 28 to 38 is is when you read about this triumphant entry when Jesus rode into the city upon a donkey, and and this was prophesied way back in in Isaiah that a king would ride into town to bring peace and justice, and so the people were waiting for him at the gates, and they celebrated, and they began to to call out, um, and and they they believed that this, this coming Messiah was going to deliver them, which he was. That's what he was coming to do, but it wasn't in the way they expected. And so we read, starting from verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And as you hear these, these, these cries, these cries of joy, the Pharisees begin to grow very threatened, right? I mentioned these people before, the people who Jesus was spitting in the face of by talking about this message of grace. That it wasn't about the law anymore. It was about love. It was about mercy. And so already the so called prophet had come and threatened the way of faith of the Pharisees. And now all of these people are gathered outside of Jerusalem, calling him the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they get angry and they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. It's blasphemy. But he tells the Pharisees that if the people were silent, surely the stones would cry out instead. And so the people go on shouting for joy. I think this is something that still pertains to us today as well, that message. That if we grow silent, the stones would cry out instead. And we need to recognize in our own lives that as we know and we we begin to have a revelation of who Christ is, to us, that we need to be calling out, that we need to be crying out, and our lives need to be a beacon of that love and that joy that we have inside of our hearts. Because I don't want stones crying out for me. I want my life to reflect that. And it seems so good. We're in this moment, and it seems so good, so joyous. The people are calling out. But if you carry on into verse 41, Jesus begins to weep. Even as the people are rejoicing around him, he begins weeping. He knows that in spite of what the people cry out about him, being a blessed king, he knows that he won't be accepted as Israel's king. Certainly not in life. And he knows that Israel will continue down a destructive path against a kingdom that he sought to bring with him. He begins weeping. They're calling out, they're calling him the king. He brings the kingdom with him, but he knows that these Israelites would continue to neglect the poor, they would continue to hate their brother. They would continue to stir up rebellion against uh, Rome, looking for a new Messiah to save them from their captors long after Jesus was gone. See, what you have to recognize is that the Israelites, we recognize now that God was, Jesus was bringing the kingdom with him but the Israelites didn't know what that meant. They thought that the Messiah who was coming was going to be like Moses, right? They believed that Jesus was coming to deliver them from Rome, just like Moses delivered the people from Egypt. But he wasn't. They thought that he was coming like King David to establish this new kingdom and to overthrow their their subjugators, to overthrow Rome, but he wasn't. He knew for that so many of these people who were in this street, calling out Hosanna in the highest, That he would neither be their king in life or in death. And so he begins to weep for them because it breaks his heart. But that doesn't stop him. We'll keep keep going, we'll keep following that storyline. In fact, he doesn't stop. He knows what needs to be accomplished. So he continues to stand upon righteousness and he begins to get stirred up in his indignation. He begins going into the temple and he throws over tables. He calls out Pharisees for their rigidity in practicing the law, which was leading people to damnation. And he even foretells of the destruction of the temple. So we're going back to that Davidic covenant, right? The house of the Lord as prophesied in the Davidic covenant, Jesus says that he's going to tear down that temple and rebuild it, right? That's the Davidic covenant. That's what he's promised. That God, that the, the, the one who would come from, from David's descendants would build for him a house that would, that would stand forever. So he's saying that he's gonna tear down that temple and rebuild it, and the people began to mock him because it's impossible. It Took King Solomon years to build the temple and it took him m- millions of dollars, millions of, of dollars worth of gold uh, to build it. But this, however, was not a literal temple. Who here has ever heard the phrase, your body is a temple, right? we know that now our bodies are temples and that god resides within us but that's this didn't make sense to to the jewish people they didn't understand the holy spirit they didn't understand that god could come and reside within them and so jesus starts talking about his body as a temple which is given for us if that phrasing sounds familiar it's it's because it's not the only thing it's not only symbolized by christ in the temple but also in the festival for which they were celebrating in Jerusalem. When we talk about the communion of the Lord's Supper, which began with the washing of feet, uh, which is an institution we will share in today, and I'm sure Pastor Dave will teach you more when we do end up washing one another's feet and why we do it. Uh, But in the same way, Jesus is talking about the elements of communion where the Lord's Supper were symbolized as his body broken for us. Right? Right? The bread is his body, which is broken for us. And the wine is his blood, which he would spill. And he would give his body for us, just as he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days for us. So they share in this, this time of, of camaraderie. But, but all the while, Jesus' heart is breaking. And after this meal, he brings his disciples to the garden, which is on the Mount of Olives, to pray. And he says, in Luke 42 to 44, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I didn't know this. Me and my wife are watching a medical show. But when the body is in great, great distress, the greatest distress that you can experience, it begins to sweat blood, right? And this is what's happening to Jesus as he's praying. He hasn't been nailed to a cross yet, but he knows what is coming. And so he begins to cry out to the Lord and and say, Lord, take this cup from me. In this passage, Jesus begins to wrestle with this very human desire to save his life instead of sacrificing it. Let us be clear that Jesus was not free of fear. Jesus came as man. He knew what he had to do, but that did not mean that he wouldn't suffer like any of us would, knowing that the next day we would be tormented, the next day we would would be put to a horrible death, and so he calls upon the name of the Lord. He's in agony, and he prays more earnestly. His, His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And his prayer was this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So he's praying two things. Number one, Lord, please take this cup from me. But already, even after he prays, that he understands what needs to take place. And so he overcomes. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And in the same way, we need to have that same prayer for ourselves. It's not about us. It's not about our own will but what the Father would have for us. It's so much greater than what you would have for yourself. And so Jesus is in this great moment of despair um, and he's suffering. And in fact, it is in this very garden that the religious leaders come and find him. Right, when we read about it, we know that he is betrayed by one of his dearest friends whom he loved. Many of us, when we we think about Judas Iscariot, we think of this, this backstabber We think of him as a treacherous betrayer of Jesus, and that's all that he is. We simplify him. We put him in a box. But what you need to realize is that Jesus has journeyed with him from the beginning of his his ministry. I tell you undoubtedly in this moment, Jesus would have loved Judas as a dear brother. He would have loved him like his own brother. And in that moment, when he's being betrayed and sold for just 30 pieces of silver, Jesus had already experienced so much heartbreak throughout that, that day. He began to weep for Israel. He was weeping because he, know, he knows what's about to take place. And then in this moment, he's being betrayed by his closest, one of his closest friends. Do not think for a moment that this didn't cause Jesus great, deep, deep grief. It says in Hebrews 4.15, I think this is the significant part of this, this passage, uh, is when you later read in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. What you need to recognize is, is Jesus wasn't just fully God. He was fully man. He experienced the same heartbreak. He experienced the same tragedy that we do. But he empathized. He did so that he could empathize with us in our weakness. He humbled himself. He who was God, he who put the breath in your lungs, made himself like you so that he could also experience that same heartbreak. So in moments when you have this despair in your heart, you can call upon the name of the Lord and say, you've been here. You empathize with me, Lord. You care for me because you know what it is to be betrayed. You know what it is to have your heart break for others because you love them and you want to see them come to Christ. God has that same heart for Israel in the moment he rides into Jerusalem. He is a, he is a perfect high priest. And so in this moment, what I realized as I'm reading through all of Luke, preparing for this, is, is that the day before his crucifixion, Jesus is going without any sleep. He's captured. He's up all night praying. And he's captured without any sleep, without any brother at his side. You see, when Jesus was captured, Peter cut the ear off of one of his assailants because he loved Jesus and he didn't want him to go. But Jesus knew what had to be done, so he healed the ear of his own assailant and he went willingly. But even Peter, who cut off the ear of Jesus' assailant, would deny him three times. So Jesus, every single person that Jesus holds near and dear to his heart has abandoned him. He's gone without sleep. He's, he's at, at the lowest point in his entire life. And what does he do? He goes to trial, knowing that he would be put to death. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way. And at his lowest Point in his life, he did not sin. He was obedient. He did what the Lord willed of him. He stands trial knowing that he is about to be put to death. And today I spoke about many significant figures in Scripture and throughout the Gospels. I spoke about Moses. I spoke about King David. I talked about the Pharisees and the disciples. And I even talked about our own Lord and Savior Jesus. But before the crucifixion, there's this really interesting figure that's introduced, but he's introduced almost in passing, as though you're supposed to forget his name. His name is Barabbas. And for those of you who don't know who Barabbas is, he was a murderer, he was a rebel against Rome. He was a man who was also who also stood accused for every single thing that Jesus was accused for. I think that's crazy. I think that's so interesting because in, in one sense, when, when Pilate says, who would you rather have? Jesus or Barabbas? They've, they're accused of the same crimes. Look at these two men. Barabbas deserved every single thing that was upon his name. And Jesus was, was our perfect high priest who in his lowest moment would give his life I think in the midst of all of these incredible figures who I talked about, Moses, David, the Pharisees, the disciples, aside from Jesus, I think Barabbas might be the most significant person in this entire story. In spite of the fact that he is only mentioned in passing, right, you're supposed to forget about him. I'm about to play a clip and and it'll explain to you why I think Barabbas is, is so significant. I got the thumbs up from Nathan, so I think we're good to go. So if you guys could just show it.
1: We see the story of jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand and then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative his name's barabbas we don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer a leader of an insurrection a rebel and why he's even mentioned sometimes i'm not so sure
2: it's like what let's this is about jesus going to the cross
1: so in this moment Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage, who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy, this has is, this is gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner. A man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free? Open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, We want Barabbas. Yeah. Give us Barabbas.
2: us and i felt i was reading this the other day and i felt god sweet to me i love perhaps i love him but god he's a bad man i love him and i wanted him
1: to go free but didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the it get- yeah but i love perhaps.
2: Sent his son for barabbas even the one he knew would walk away from jesus and his free gift and never come back he loves him and the nerve the call and the audacity of believers to think i got saved by grace but now that i'm in this deep dark place of bondage i better work hard to get myself out what
1: that's the opposite of the gospel Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't. You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one, and he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus, and I'm the barabbas, and they start to take my chains off, and I say, No, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me, say, No, son. Let me have it. Let me have your sin let me have your pain no God I did it to myself I deserve it my marriage won't make it this is what I deserve I deserve divorce I deserve poverty I deserve sickness I deserve it all no
2: God I'm so ashamed give me your shame What if I do it again?
1: I'll still be here. Oh, God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. so welcoming, so inclusive. Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin, I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the intention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off? Thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free. It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is another.
0: I've watched that video four times in the past two days and I've cried literally every time. You see this new covenant that overcame the one of Moses and this new kingdom that Jesus established in the line of David was not just for the Jews deliverance, but for the deliverance of all, even those who did not earn it or deserve it. This is the gospel message that in the moment that Jesus hung upon the cross, the cross, and died for Barabbas, and died for me, and died for you, John 19, 28 to 30 tells us. Jesus, knowing all the things, were now knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop, which is like a sponge. And they put it to his mouth so when jesus received the sour wine he said it is finished and bowing his head he gave up his spirit the work of christ is finished and it is for you it's a gift of inheritance that jesus gave his life as perfect sacrifice for whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life in a minute we're going to take we're going to partake in communion but for those of you who have not yet accepted jesus we're going to pray the sinner's prayer which is a commitment to allow jesus into your life and make a decision to follow him then as a new brother or sister you can share with us and you can celebrate the victory we experience on this day of good friday by the grace and sacrifice of jesus and we'll share in that communion, the same communion that, that they, partake, they took, partook in 2,000 years ago before Jesus went to the cross, which we do in remembrance of him. So if everyone uh, has their emblems, uh, just grab them. If, if you don't have your emblems, grab them now. Uh, but we're going to pray the sinner's prayer. And for those of you who have uh, been a member of this church, you know that we pray aloud. All of us that we pray aloud so that those who are making that decision for the first time feel comfortable that they're with brothers and sisters who were in the same place when they accepted Christ, that it's for everyone. So I'm going to pray, and as I pray, just repeat after me Bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. I believe Jesus was my substitute when He died on the cross. I believe his shed blood, his death, and resurrection were for me. I now receive him as my savior. I thank you for the forgiveness of my sins, the gift of salvation, and everlasting life. Help me in committing that from this day forth, I may lead a life that honors you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the
1: sermon. We really hope that God spoke to your life. You can find more of the Word of God by watching our service live stream and listening to our podcast on our website,
2: LighthouseNiagara.com.